you're told not to regret anything in your life. So I do not regret taking that decision. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Cosmic Cast. I'm John Bernie Fisher. As always, I'm joined by Tom Harvey. All right. And Ricky Bahir. Hello. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Professor Finn Stewart. Thank you very much. How's it going? Happy to be here. Yeah, no, wonderful. So uh, you're the director of the Scottish Universities and Environmental Research Centre, right, or yeah, CERC yeah. as it's otherwise known, I guess. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could start off, I guess, by asking for listeners who are not too familiar, what is CERC? Well, we're a research institute um, co-owned by a University of Glasgow in Edinburgh. We are 55 years old, originally um, built around the nuclear reactor, one of the nuclear reactors that was set up by the Wilson government in the 1960s for research. We rapidly morphed into an equipment centre and subsequently decommissioned the nuclear reactor. And so we're really the host of lots of big kit, large mass spectrometers um, for the use of initially for the Scottish universities, now Glasgow and Edinburgh universities, but we're an essentially an independent research institution that uh, undertakes our own research and collaborate with a lot of other people. Excellent. Thank you very much. Superb. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Like the <laughs> <laughs> um, so I. Um, so, so I guess it's a bit like a national lab in a way. Yep, we, we, as well as doing our own collaborative science, we can collaborate with, you know, we've got a strong collaborative ethos, so we collaborate with, with um, Scotland, UK, internationally. We operate several national facilities for, for the NERC. In particular, they're, they're in the geosciences and environmental science, so they're radiocarbon, argon-argon, uh, stable isotopes, both for... Uh, earth sciences and for ecology um, but and also cosmogenic isotopes so yeah so we've got historically we've always had a strong strong collaborative ethos and a good component of our work is still kind of nationally funded for for the UK um, user community the UK, UK academic user community yeah so how many people are based there so a staff Staff of 85, um, probably of the order of, well, that is probably 20 um, fully-fledged researchers, maybe, what, 10 postdocs, Mm. and probably a similar number of PhD students, and then um, support staff as well. For for a, for any university, any not least campus-based school or department, we're heavily we're heavily oversubscribed in technicians. Our, our staff to technician ratio is rather low, because we're an equipment centre. We don't do a lot of teaching, so we do need that technical support. And we've always said that there's absolutely no point in having a Rolls Royce if you've got nobody that can drive that's it. Right. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a problem we often occur here, isn't it? We have all this equipment, but no one to fix it on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess the students who are there, then that they have their degrees affiliated then with either Glasgow or, or sure, Edinburgh. mostly Glasgow. So I'm, I'm, we're mostly employees of the University of Glasgow. They administer us, but as I say, we're co-owned by the by the two universities. But our our grad students go through the the University of Glasgow College of Science and Engineering mm-hmm. grad school, actually. Yeah. 
Ooh, so yeah. how did you get involved uh, working in Cirque in the first place? And how did you get to become director? Ooh, well, how did I get there in the first place? Well, I'm Scottish. Um, well, I'm, yeah. I'm actually English, but I was born in Woking in Surrey, so I was born <laughs> further south than all of you guys. Oh, wow. <laughs> Probably. I can hear it in your accent. <laughs> I know, it comes <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, um, but I'm, no, I'm Scottish by, by family. I've lived in Scotland all my life, and so... I uh, came to Manchester, came to Sheffield initially to do my PhD. Um, that transferred to Was Manchester that with Grenville, yep, yep. Um, and came came Manchester, finished my PhD in Manchester, then I did a postdoc here. And then I had the chance to travel around as a postdoc or take a permanent job back home. Yeah. And you're told not to regret anything in your life. Mm-hmm. So I do not regret taking that decision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but I've been there ever since. I was, I was in SUERC from '93 onwards, and I've slowly, slowly um, climbed the climbed the greasy pole to get to be. It's my turn to be director, I guess. And and I've and I've had the pleasure of working uh, under and being supported by some really, really influential directors of SUERC. So the time has come for me to to make a contribution to it. So as director, what's your sort of role? Do you get to sort of um, have an influence in the sort of research areas that go on there or is it more administrative really? It's a bit of both. Yeah, no, there's a lot of admin and none of us were put on the planet to to, to be administrators. So I'm learning, that's been the big um, learning process for me. But you, but you, one of the big advantages, and it's a, it's a cracking job and I'm, I'm actually very, very lucky. Um, but one of the big advantages of the job is is actually I'm, I'm forced by dint of the job to find out what everybody else does. If I don't know what everybody else does, I'm not doing my job properly. And I've found that fascinating you know not least there are different people in the way they the way they do things is different but what they do and why they do it and who they do it with it, it is a real fun part of the job yeah. the downside is that my research the time i can commit to my own research has gone down a bit um but you know i think it's probably that's probably more than compensated for by uh, learning what other people do and making a you know modest contribution to, yeah. to it I guess talking of your research, so you're mostly involved with noble gas analysis. Yep, 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 yep. So, yeah, I mean, I did a PhD uh, in noble gases, and I've not really strayed too far from that over my over my research career. I've I've tried where possible to integrate those techniques um, with other isotope and other geochemical uh, techniques. So my, I, but it is my skill really is a, a, as a noble gas. Uh, isotope geochemist um, and I still it's my it's in my heart you know when I, I don't spend much time in the lab anymore unfortunately and when I do as has been demonstrated actually this afternoon mm-hmm. I, I usually mess it up I, you know I, I it's been a long time since I've done any measurements but it is still the thing I, I pride myself on on having developed a lab myself and have got a, a thriving a sustainable lab for the last 20 odd years in East Kilbride. I've had a lot of support from from people, but yeah, it's where my heart is really, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Have you always known since your PhD days that you wanted to be in a lab and do these kind do, of things? Well, yeah, do you know, that's a really interesting question. If you'd asked my mother and father, they said, I can't tell the difference between a spanner and a screwdriver. So they would never have predicted I would ever have been a lab, <laughs> a lab, a lab geek. Um, but I, I got into it, you know, with, with, with Granville, Turner, Are you working on HS uh, on um, uh, MS One? No, I never did. No, no. I when I arrived, my PhD in, in Sheffield was to start up 
um, was to was to set up the MAP 21550, so the Mass Analyzer Products Instrument, which was kind of new on the market at that time. That's how long ago this was. Um, it was a, I mean, it's a kind of multi-purpose um, argon isotope instrument. Uh, uh, my responsibility, yeah, was to get that going, and it took seemed to take an interminable length of time, <laughs> but we got it going, and uh, you know, in the end, got a decent PhD out of it. And at that point, hey, well, well, <clears throat> I've got one in Cirque, so I've still got a two one five fifty at Cirque, and it's the workhorse instrument. Um, and I know it inside out. I'm not sure I know the electronics too well, but I know the way it works too well. I think it's still it's fantastic. It's a great piece of kit, and um, I hope it li- outlasts me. So what sort of samples are you working on doing your PhD? PhD, well, so my PhD really was to do in minerals what the big players in the noble gas geochemistry world had been doing in fluids. So noble gases are phenomenally powerful traces of the origin of fluids and the and the, their interaction history with with rocks, crustal fluids in particular. But of course, fluid inclusions trapped by minerals mm-hmm. um, are a potential source of that kind of information as well. So my PhD really was on um, developing techniques to allow us to extract the gases from the fluids in minerals and analyze the orders of magnitude less helium, neon, argon, krypton, and xenon that are in the fluid inclusions um, compared to compared to samples of natural fluid. So yeah, so I built crushers, two or three different types of crushers, um, and applied the tech and developed the analytical procedures to allow me to measure specifically helium and argon isotopes in the kind of stuff released by crushing one gram of, of, of mineral, of pure mineral. And that, if, if there's ever been an exciting time in my career, and there haven't been very many, that was it. Because I did kind of feel like I was at the, the cutting edge of, of my research, you know. Would you say uh, then those are your favourite noble gases? Yeah. No, well, <clears throat> no, actually no. Neon is by far and away the most powerful one. I think, it's, I've always said there's two types of noble gas geochemist. There's there's the folk that do xenon isotopes yeah. mm-hmm. and then the folk that do everything else. And, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm, I'm firmly in the in the latter category there. <clears throat> but well, I see favourite, I'm not so sure I, I have one, but you know, it's horses for courses. There are a lot of things now that we really need neon isotopes mm-hmm. for and being able to make high precision neon isotope measurements is, you know, is, sets, sets people apart from each other, right? <laughs> What is it about neon specifically that makes making high precision measurements of it particularly useful? Good question. Uh, so n- you got to you got to think that, that neon's competitor isotopes are helium and argon, and and they are themselves highly very useful at doing uh, one or two things, but the the isotopes of helium and argon are produced by multiple processes okay so so radiogenic helium 4 often in rocks especially old rocks often messes up the 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 isotopic signal uh, the trapped isotopic signal of of of, of the helium um, so neon what does neon do neon allows us to understand both the primordial signature a radiogenic signature and the cosmogenic signature. This is going to get a bit geeky now. Primordial neon really is, uh, you know, 
is really answering big questions about where they are, what where we got our, where the Earth got our volatiles from, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, cosmogenic neon is fantastically powerful, not just on Mars and not just on on the Moon, but is is a um, great chronometer of long-term exposure on the land on of, on the earth sorry so we use it for understanding in particular uh, the the long-term landscape development in arid parts of the world like antarctica mm-hmm. or like um the atacama desert then there's a little known production mechanism of, of neon based on uh, alpha decay so alphas that are absorbed by oxygen 18 that ultimately make neon 21 that radiogenic process is achingly slow but is uh, is useful in minerals where the helium that would be produced by the alpha particle diffuses out and uh, is relevant in minerals where it, which are difficult to date. So increasingly, you'll see uranium neon ages of minerals, and that's a, l- a lot. Those will be um, ore minerals. So we're using it now to to date iron oxides. But why why do we need precise? Well, so what what is it about the precision of neon isotope measurements that's tough? Well, actually, the difficulty comes from the fact that well, probably several reasons. One is there's not a hell of a lot of neon kicking around anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of isobaric interferences of at the different peaks of neon. So neon 20's got several isobaric interferences, doubly charged argon 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, neon 21 has its isobaric interferences. And, and neon 22 has doubly charged CO2, mass 44. That oh, So we need... High resolution or and high precision to 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 resolve these um, these interferences. Plus, then there's a this residual issue of whether there's a hydride, whether the the effect of neon twenty hydride at, at the mass of neon twenty one, the light of the the low abundance isotope. Uh, the all these confusing factors have made um, neon isotope measurements in the past really pretty poor. Um, new technologies, um, better understanding of production mechanisms in, in mass spectrometers are allowing us to, to improve the precision, which I think in the future will benefit a whole, like I say, a whole array, array of sciences, you know, so isotope tracing and, and geochronology. So is that used for um, uh, the uranium neon for zircons as well? You can, yep, you yeah. can date. You, you could. We were looking at a paper last week. I think yeah. they reported uh, that for some uranium neon. Data. Yeah, yeah, you, you can. Buckets of uranium, obviously, in in zircon, uh, but with zircon, you've got high precision uranium lead that you can do. So, yeah. so. Uh, Probably the uranium neon technique is probably more a thermochronometer, so yeah, it's more telling exactly. you the thermal history. So I think they were looking the, the, at uh, uh, metamorphism uh, or um, uh, uh, hydrothermal alteration. Yeah, it could be cooling history yeah. or somehow, yeah, yeah. So the urania helium technique of on zircon is is rather well established. We've been doing it for a long time now. Um, it has its complications. The amount of radiation damage and things like that govern the closure temperature in different in different zircons. Um, but we, I guess, the slightly higher um, mass, you know, neon, has real potential in things like zircon and potentially even in appetite um, to provide thermal history information that you can't get through other other thermochronometers. I guess it diffuses quite slowly. Slower than helium, but faster than fa- um, faster than argon, faster than lead. So it's going to give you some, uh, you know, the closer temperature will be 300, 400 degrees centigrade. I would guess, right.
So you've got to use all these different things in conjunction then? It depends on the process that you want to understand. Yeah. It depends on the thermal history that, that, that you're trying to um, you're trying to extract from your rock. We, uh, Ken Farley in the in the 1990s and early 2000s developed Appetite as a hel- the, the helium thermochronometer and Appetite and that has revolutionized the way we do really low temperature thermochronology. Um, add to that helium in zircon, it's seen a revolution in the way that fishing tracks are done in Appetite. So we're really pretty good now at that low temperature end, that let's say 50 to 200 degrees centigrade. We've got two or three really good thermochronometers there that are really pretty useful at understanding the exhumation of rocks through the upper five or six kilometers. But getting down to kind of mid-crustal depths, we don't have too many really good good um, thermochronometers. The more we can get, the better. Yeah. But so it really depends on the on the on the geology on the tectonic or exhumation history that you want to understand which which technique you apply you say at the moment you have to do a lot more administrative work than actually get to concentrate on your own research and that was a step you took a long time ago when you decided to take this permanent position what would you have done differently then if you had decided to go somewhere else do a postdoc um, well, I would, have, I would have probably gone to California or Paris or Japan or something like that yeah. to, to have a bit of fun. Um, yeah, I, I don't recall that I particularly had any, any offers at the mm. time. Um, yeah, I probably did. But I don't know. I plumped for going home. I plumped for going back home. And, and I mean, it, it f- I'd, I was moving to a place that didn't have a lab. Mm-hmm. I was moving to a place that didn't have any kind of infrastructure for doing it. So I had to build it up myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm in, in a way, so I missed the travel. I missed the life experience of, of you know, a year in Tokyo, perhaps. But I got the experience of having to set up my own lab, exactly. having to find the funding for it and, and uh, write research proposals and, and develop a network mm. that I might not have done if I'd gone away somewhere and, and you know, spent my life. I, I was super conscious at the time that uh, permanent positions were like hen's teeth were pretty mm-hmm. pretty hard to get yeah. and that was then it's even harder now and I'm, yeah. I, I mean, and the one thing I would say is I'm glad I'm not I mean I would love to be your guy's age again yeah. uh, but I, I don't envy you seek trying to seek out permanent yeah, positions and I, and I kind of I, I maybe took the easy I maybe took the the, the 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 safe route the conservative route but I think probably at the back of my mind I was conscious that actually there aren't a lot of permanent jobs out there so you might as well if you get the choice chance to take it yeah but you should take it right and through what you've done maybe you've got your proverbial fingers in many different pies because of it more you might have learned more than you ever could have done going to do postdoc to postdoc because you're involved in all this different research yeah it's yeah that's true it's it, it it you're a bit more self-driven as a consequence. You're not going to do somebody else's work, yeah. and that that yeah, that forces things on you. But the flip side is that I didn't get um, exposed to other people, and the way other people do the kind of things that mm. that uh, that I do. So in a way, I feel a little bit. I've I've probably reinvented the wheel. I've probably made mistakes that that if I'd have talked to other people, I wouldn't necessarily have spent the time trying to do things or I wouldn't have necessarily uh, made mis- made those mistakes. But yeah, it, it, it's 
I mean, the proverbially it swings and roundabouts. I've learned a lot, but I probably missed out a bit mm. of life experience by, by doing that. So do you not get to do much traveling now then in your position? No, I do. Yeah, no, absolutely I do. But, I, but you know, spending a week at a conference isn't, isn't, the, same, isn't, isn't yeah. the same as having a year or three years absorbing the culture. You know, my, I, I only speak one language and I don't speak that particularly well. <laughs> uh, the, so, I've, yeah, I've kind of missed out on that. And I, like I say, I don't regret it, but um, or I don't admit to regretting it, let's put it that yeah. way. Right. What are some of the challenges of designing your own lab from scratch then? Do, pres presumably, did you know what you wanted to have in it in advance? Or, I mean, you said finding funding. Key one, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, especially in this day and age, but, so getting the funding for it is a, is a, is a, you know, is a big step. Mm -hmm. um, you never get what you want, you know. Well, okay, so let's say in the UK system, you don't get what you want, you don't get what you need, so you've got to rein in your um, your your kind of desires. Uh, and then, you know, you've got all sorts of other restrictions. You've got the space restriction, you've got the... People are rarely in a purpose-built building, so, you know, we'll find some the lab that I set, set up in, power came in from three different directions, and when there was a power failure, different things would go off. And, and it, you know, the wiring was done by people that didn't want other people to understand the wiring of the building, I think. So, you know, so you have all of these kind of uh, logistical challenges. Um, but you get, you usually, you're resourceful enough, you get by, you know, you get by with what you might argue would be sub, at the start suboptimal conditions. You get by and you crack on with it. And my philosophy was um, start off doing the easy stuff, doing, do try to do some sexy stuff some stuff that you can get published in reasonably good quality journals but that's not too difficult to do don't spend three years banging your head off a brick wall trying to do a hard thing get a couple of kind of low pick some low-hanging fruit off early on um develop a bit of a reputation and 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 you know then you can you can afford a bit of a lull as you really try to do the hard stuff yeah there is definitely an element I find in academia now from everyone who gives you advice on how to play the game, essentially. you have It's not necessarily about doing the most amazing research you can straight at the beginning. It's just about getting your foot in the door, really. And then... Well, my advice to, to uh, uh, researchers of your age is that you, you're... It's, it's quality is the thing that you, need, you guys need to be producing. So you, there, there's a lot of... Um, rubbish out there honestly mm. there's a lot of incremental research being done rather than having three kind of um, bog standard papers mm. one good paper for a student to for a PhD student to come out their degree with one good quality paper says more that they can justify they can they can present they can uh, justify in an interview I find intrinsically more useful than having three kind of pot boiler papers that they've been th the third or fourth fourth author on that aren't making making the big step. So I, I, I like to see different angles coming in for you know so so more than one analytical technique being applied or an analysis and modeling being incorporated into into papers. Uh, so yeah, I find it. I mean, I just would not want to be your age now. It's so competitive. So you've you've got to find your own way through it, whatever your yeah, discipline yeah. is. You know, you've yeah. got to, you, and you've got to be lucky. I guess on a sort of similar note, right, 
you've been involved with a really broad range of different sort of uh, research projects and topics and field locations and stuff. What have been like some of your highlights? Where where it's like on on Earth or in the solar system? Do you really enjoy studying? I, well, from, from in my career, I really enjoyed I, I really enjoyed that the initial fluid inclusion work that allowed us to. We were the only group doing it, um, so studying stuff that people uh, didn't have or were, were um, stuff that was hard to get so mid hydrothermal sulfides from mid-ocean ridge from black smoker deposits that was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun. just just actually getting sent those samples mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun working and stuff like that um yes i am a lab geek um, but my my mantra is that I try every summer to at least get one field trip. You know, the, the principle that you stick rubbish into your mass spectrometer, you get rubbish out, is not much use if you've not got much control over what's coming in. So I'll, I'll try every year to squeeze a field trip, often on the back of other people's mm-hmm. trips, you know, rarely my own, um, to get into the field so you get a different experience and so you get to see a different part of the world and that 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 makes life a little bit more interesting but also brings some highlights mm-hmm. and actually this time next week i'll be in northwest iceland um sampling some basalts and so, it, so it's things like that, that that you you you're only there for a week and it might hose it down every day it might be blowing a hoolie every day but it doesn't matter it's it's getting you out it's getting you you know it's getting a bit of wind in your hair well you should be quite good i think the general rule of thumb is if it's raining here it's generally sunny in iceland yes, that's right, yes. <laughs> well enjoy the weather in britain next week because it's going because i'll be in iceland and i'll be shocking no doubt <laughs> Um, so you're here actually this afternoon visiting Manchester because you're discussing some lunar stuff. Is this your first sort of foray in, into into lunar geochemistry? Undoubtedly, yeah, yeah. We've, we've we we spent a long time. So analysing terrestrial samples really doesn't um, really doesn't fit you kit you out very well for um, for for running uh, lunar material. It's you know the the abundance of Cosmogen. We we are experienced in trying to measure tiny amounts of cosmogenic neon twenty one or cosmogen tiny amounts of cosmogenic helium three. Never ever having knowingly measured any cosmogenic argon in terrestrial material, and these things are just saturated. This stuff was just saturated. We had to, um, so we had to learn. We we you know we had to learn how to extract it, how to minimize, how to weigh samples, you know, precisely. Um, and then how to clean up afterwards. Actually, it was the it, it, um, when I started off in the noble gas world, there were two type, there was two two types of machine. There was those that were used for terrestrial samples and those that were used for extraterrestrial samples. And I now know why. It's taken me twenty five years to figure it out, but I now know why. It, we've probably lost about three or four weeks just degassing the furnace yeah. that we wanted to use for. Um, for you know, for terrestrial material after we'd used it for the lunar material. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and just interpreting the trying to interpret the data. You know, we're going to use it for the same kind of purpose that actually that we use um, terrestrial isotopes uh, on planet Earth for. Um, it's fantastic getting to try try it out on another planet is brilliant. Um, but yeah, it was it it it's been a lot of fun, but it was kind of, kind of quite good to get back to the day job <laughs> of doing terrestrial stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no plan to move on to Martian meteorites then? Um, we've so we've actually developed a new mass spec for high precision neon, 
I think we probably should be using it to try to remeasure the the neonisotope composition of various things in the solar system, uh, and and it may very well be that we go to Mars. I think probably we're going to start looking at um, precise measurements of cosmogenic neon uh, to begin with, but no extraterrestrial material probably requires a decent amount of funding to do it. Mm-hmm. It just it just seems to require a hell of a lot of time to do it yeah, yeah. to do the measurements. That in my lab that would have to get funded. So yeah, so I don't have any plans at the moment. I'll leave you guys to <laughs> leave you guys to do it. <laughs> One last question that we like to ask everybody. Oh. Which is, is there uh, something that's not in your field? It could be, you know, history, art, or whatever. Maybe something even in science that you find particularly fascinating. Yeah, always have. Really, really always have. This is getting a bit geeky now. Why does a cricket ball swing? <laughs> when it's, you know, it's a fantastic thing to see a, a cricket ball swing, and the science is really unclear as to why when a bowler balls a ball, does it does the ball swing? Different weather conditions, different climate, different distances above the ground, different grasses, different people's perception, whole load of factors come into it, and are still. The, the fluid dynamics of why a cricket ball swings still has evaded human thought. That's why is it thing so difficult? Because there are so many different variables to account for? Or? I don't know if anybody properly has studied it, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think probably people only ever attack one variable. I think the one thing that they don't understand is the human perception of how much something is affected by things. I think it's really important. But that's, if it had my time again... I wouldn't want to be a doctor or a vet or an ad. I wanted to study swing and spin of cricket balls. I'm sure there's excellent funding yeah. opportunities for that. <laughs> that would be a lifelong career. Well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're right to take that permanent position as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <you're> right. <laughs> Well, on that note, we'll just say thank you once again yeah, for joining us for a really interesting conversation. Well, no, thank you very much, fellas. I've enjoyed yeah. that a lot. Well, listen to all our uh, listeners. We'll see you again next week. Thank you very much. Bye.